our uh, study lately from the pastor letters has been about how the church works. Um, that is how it behaves. Now, we don't want you thinking that we're just sitting here going, all right, everybody behave. You know, it's not like that kind of a deal. But we really are just talking about the what is the expectation of the behavior that the Lord has for the church? I mean, maybe to say it a different way, what, do, what should we do? What do we do? Here we are. We're a church. We've come through the doors. Many of us have become members, and here we are. We're just ready to go. Tell us what to do. What do we need to be doing? And I kind of believe that was the heart. That was really at the heart of the church there at Ephesus. And so when Paul wrote this to Timothy, he was giving that answer. Hey, let them know this is what the church needs to look like. This is what you need to be doing. Sometimes we talk about what, you know, what we need to be, you know. Sometimes we, we talk about how we need to think. But this is the place where now we talk about what do we do? And I appreciate that. I need that. I'm, I'm a guy that needs that sort of thing, right? Because if you leave me without giving me instruction on what to do, I probably won't do much, right? All right, I guess I'm supposed to do nothing, you know. I'm just sitting here. And so I'm very thankful uh, for this. Now, Paul told the, the pastor at Ephesus named Timothy, he told him this, and it's there in your Bibles in the third chapter of 1 Timothy, in verse 15, he said, I am writing these things to you, the things in this letter, so that you will know how one ought to behave, conduct, behave himself in the household of God. Now, these three letters, often called the pastoral letters, really help us understand how to behave in the church. What we should do as Christians as a church. See? And that's, and that's not easy. Paul laid out seven challenges to the church in doing that. He said, it's not going to be easy to just do the things you're supposed to do. And the biggest challenge, 2 Timothy 4, is that people just won't want to hear sound doctrine, won't want the word of God. Now that makes sense to me. Because if you think of it as a family, if you think of it as, you know, you have parents, parents, you have your job, and your job is to raise that family, and oftentimes you're giving instruction, one of the hardest things to do is to get your kids to listen to you. Kids, one of the hardest things to do is to just listen to your parents as though they know what they're talking about, right? I'm just saying I know that because Proverbs 4, actually, you go through all, all throughout the Proverbs. What is he saying all the time? Hey, listen, listen to the instruction of a father and a mother. You know, do what they say. Put, you know, Proverbs uh, 2 and Proverbs 4 talks about taking their instructions and putting it around your neck like a, a garland of silver and precious metal and gold to follow. And so, it makes sense then to me that one of the biggest challenges for the church is going to be to, to have instruction that people just won't listen to it. Kids don't listen to their parents. People that go to church don't listen to the, their preachers. It's just kind of how it is. And we've got to work on that, right? We work through that. We won't want the Word of God. And that's the same place Jeremiah was at, by the way, as a prophet in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 14, verse 13. But ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you a lasting peace in this place. Now what Jeremiah was saying to the Lord was this. You gave me your word to preach. And I preached it, and you told me to tell them that a sword was coming, and that famine was coming, and it was going to come as judgment for all the evil that they have been doing, and I did that. But then the other preachers came around and said, nope, that's not going to happen. What do I do? I mean, you tell me to preach the word, I did, and they don't want it. In fact, the other preachers around me 
are making it worse because I'm the only one with this kind of message and no one is preaching like I am. What do we do? What do we do when we're at that place where you preach sermons and you preach messages and you teach classes and you have your family school and you're giving them the word there and people are saying, yeah, but they're, most of the other preachers aren't preaching this. They're doing other things. So no thanks. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. I didn't give them their sermons. Those aren't my sermons, God says. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. End quote. That's 21st century America. That's the American church today. The pastors are not preaching the word of God. Instead, they preach visions and supernatural powers and any deception from their own minds. Whatever comes to their mind to get you going, that's what they preach. We're not in much of a different place, are we? Listen, we know that things haven't changed and what what, what that does to the Lord's True church is it tempts us to believe the wrong things and to give up on sound doctrine and the preaching of the word. Listen, what happens if we believe the wrong things? Well, we behave wrongly. And you can just trace that back. If the behavior is wrong, you can be sure that the belief is wrong. It doesn't matter to me how much you tell me things that actually are true. When your belief is the opposite, that's your real theology. Or when your action is the opposite, that's your real theology. Whatever comes to their mind to do after the theology, that's the real theology. And so he says you're believing the wrong things. Now, what should the church look like? Turn to Acts chapter 20. Let me give you just a a little preview of kind of where we're going. And this is a very familiar, we're just going to look at one verse from that, 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 from Acts 20. Look at verse 35. Paul says, in everything, he's talking to uh, the elders at Ephesus. He says, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul tells these elders at this church at Ephesus, I showed you. That's example. The church needs to see its leaders in actions, in in action. It, It can't just be words. I get up here, I preach a sermon, and I say, you know, when, when I'm done, okay, goodbye, see you next week. And I show up at, you know, 9 30, 8, 8 o'clock, whatever. That's not going to do it for you. you. You need something more than that. You need to see me living, living life. You need to see me walking and my hands moving. We need to see, your, your kids need to see that from you too. You can't just think to yourself, I'm just going to be a dad and bark out orders and then just whatever, whatever, and I'll go to work and if my kids hardly see me, then whatever. They need to see Christianity in you. You can't just tell them Jesus Christ is real and then not live that out. They'll figure that out real quick. He says, I showed you. Then he says, by working hard. So the first one, example. Second one, effort. That's effort, by working hard. Can't just be Bible studies and doctrine classes, lots of talk and information and debates. What's the church working hard at? Help the weak. What's that? That's extension. Get into the lives of others. That's that's how you see needs. and, And so you get near people. 
And you get with them and you ask questions and you see those needs when you do that. Then he said this, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. That's essence. You got to have the word explained to you. You have to take the word and internalize it. In other words, who we are, the bottom line, what we're all about, our substance, our essence, the core of what makes us move is the words of Jesus. So we talk about conduct. They include all of these things, which, you know, the example and the extension and the essence. Example, effort, extension, essence, and then this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's excellence. In other words, when is the church excellent? Are you ready? What should the church excel in? Giving, not receiving. Giving. We excel in giving. You can tell when the conduct is is really happening when there's giving. Show it. That's example. Work hard. That's effort. Help the weak. That's extension. You extend. Essence. The words of Jesus. Excel at giving. This is our conduct. This is our behavior. This is, this is what we're talking about in 1 Timothy 3. So turn back to 1 Timothy. Now what Paul was really reminding the elders of Ephesus was this. How the church must work. Get to work, right? Now it has to behave a certain way when it comes to being a pillar and support of the truth. We're not gathering to have a bunch of debates and, you know, articulations of, you know, and, you know, coming together with, to interlock the theologians' minds of, you know, whatever. It's not the church. We'll talk about theology and all that kind of stuff. But listen, if our talk doesn't get us out that door doing stuff, then we're, what are we doing? Now, what's our behavior supposed to look like? Checklist. Here we go. Here's your checklist. First... It's a church that commits to sound doctrine. A church that is that behaves right, commits to sound doctrine. And so we get the mind right. Second, preaches the word. We get the mouth right. What we teach, the Bible, right? Third, confronts sin. And when we do that, we get the direction right. right? When it is wrong, what do we do? We fix it. We deal with it. Fourth, Rejects false teaching. Hey, get rid of things that hurt our direction. We gave you the direction. Now begin to get rid of things that hurts that direction. Fifth, praise evangelistically. and That is the men leading a heart for the lost. Don't miss that when you read verses 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy 2. It is the men that are leading the heart for the lost. And I'll tell you this, beloved. Grace Bible Church, our heart for the lost will only go as far as the men in this church have a heart for the lost. He said, what about the ladies? They want the men to have a heart for the lost too. Sixth, appoints elders. And that's where we left off. You've got to have leaders. How are they leading us? into the one will of Christ. He has one will. And we work to try to understand it and know it and then implement it out. Now with that, turn to Titus 1. And we're going to pick up where we left off. Appoint sellers. Now you talk about what a church should do and how it should behave. Give attention to getting leaders. How do we do that? Look at verse 5, Titus 1. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. He says appoint elders. It doesn't say, by the way, appoint pastors. Have you noticed that? It doesn't say appoint deacons. It doesn't even say appoint chiefs or bishops or priests 
or apostles. It doesn't say that. It says appoint elders. Now, where do you find guys like that? We went over this last time, so we won't do that again. But when you look at men in the church and you wonder, you know, if any of them is an elder, he gives us a, a clue and an idea of how to, to find that, how to find them. First of all, you look at his home. You look at his home. How does he lead his wife? How does he lead his children? What's that look like? Not even just what does he do in terms of, you know, all right, well, you know, he's got, you know, these uh, worship nights and he does that and that's really good and they read their Bibles and all that kind of stuff. That's good. That's really good. But how are you guiding them? What's it feel like if we were to take the spouse aside and say, I want to interview you, I want to talk to you, tell us about the home. What is it like? When he comes home, what is it like? When he's around, what is it like? When it's just him with the kids, what is it like? Is he lovingly leading his wife to demonstrate a love for Jesus Christ? Does he give the kids the gospel? Does he help them understand the will of Christ in the home? Does he require them to obey Christ? Did you understand how I said it? To obey Christ. Hey, you need to obey mom and dad. Why? Or else. Why? Because. We never have good reasons, do we? Just obey, all right? You know. But you do if you, if you do it this way. Hey, I'm calling you to obey Christ. You act like he's the head of this home. That's right. Amen. I answer to him. So that's why I say to you, child, I want you to obey Christ. Now all of that is implied there in verse 6 of what I just said. Second, so you look first at the home. Second, look at his life. Look at the character of the person. And Paul gives Titus a bunch of qualifications to look at. And we went over these last time. So if, if you want a, a bit more of a look at that, you'll get last message. Okay. And then a third area. You look at his teaching, verse 9. He says in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. You get yourself, you find a man who has a tight grip on the word of God always. He never goes far from the word. The grip is so tight, it is as though the word of God and him travel everywhere. And it doesn't even matter if he's got a literal physical Bible with him or not. He has a tight grip on the word. You see, what's he do with it? He tells us, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those that contradict. What's that mean? Remind people what is good doctrine? And then warn them, warn people when they are going the opposite direction of that good doctrine. It's that simple. So we make things way too complicated. So why am I telling you this? Well, it's because you're, it seems like you're going a little bit astray. It's not the right direction. Your, your, your wheels are a little bit out of the rut of where we're supposed to be going, of what you're supposed to be believing. And you're always looking at that. Now, he uses different terms here, and you remember, he has a starting point just with the terms. Titus, go out, look for guys like this. What do I look for? Well, look for an elder. What's an elder? An elder talks about spiritual maturity, Sometimes he calls him an overseer, and that talks about a sense of responsibility to godliness and to people. And the word pastor talks about a shepherding care, and all three of those terms are talking about the same person. And so what Titus is supposed to do 
is do this, but what does he do if he's not sure? Right? He's looking out. He's looking at people. He looks at these guys and he says, well, I'm not sure. I can't tell if they're baked or half-baked or, or no-baked. I mean, what am I looking at, right? I think uh, this is where a lot of people are in churches, a lot, of, a lot of elders, a lot of pastors. I mean, he's looking at guys that, that could qualify in all those ways, and, but, but maybe he's not sure they do. Listen, beloved, a process like this tells us that it is going to take some time. Time to make sure. Time to train others maybe that seem like they might be those guys. You say, well, how rigid do we need to be with those kinds of qualifications? I mean, what if a guy looks close? I mean, you look at his home and there's struggle or maybe there are variables that the text doesn't talk about. Have you noticed that it doesn't talk about adopted, if you adopt children? It doesn't talk about that. So what is that? How do we, how do you deal with that? Maybe, maybe it doesn't even talk about this. You got saved later. And so, you know, maybe you have now a blended family with children that aren't yours, but now you're shepherding them, but they have had other influences in the past. What are you held accountable to? How rigid are we with these standards? He say, okay, you got us, tell us. All right, I'll give you my, my thoughts here. I, I think that's why you go slow. I mean, you stay patient. And I'll give you a clue about this from 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Entrust these to faithful men. That one word faithful is the key. Listen, that implies direction about the person, not perfection. I don't want to know, is a person perfect in these qualities? I want to know, what direction are they going? Have they come to a screeching halt in one of these qualities? And if that's the case, then we have an issue. We've got a problem. Are we moving forward? And how are you moving forward? I mean, is it, is it clear that that guy is going in this Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3 direction? And you slowly work through any possible yellow flags. And then you ask this question, is he faithful at being a Titus 1 guy. And that faithfulness, you know, includes being able to see areas that you're not doing well in and giving them attention. I tell you, I mean, you know, you know, as, as elders, throughout the history of me just interacting with elders, you always, you never say, look at these qualifications and step away and go, all right, well, let's move on. Now we're moving on to other you know, greener pastors and territory, you know. It's not that at all. You're always looking at these qualities and going, hey, how are you doing? You, everything all right? I mean, you know, we still progressing in making, letting our progress be known to all. First Timothy 4, 15. You say now, is it really important that a church have guys like this? Yes. Paul tells Titus, go find them and then appoint them. The church needs pictures of Christ living on this earth. We need this. Patterns of that life. The church needs more than one guy helping it know and follow the one will of Christ. You say, well, was this really how Paul always did it? Yes, turn to Acts 14. And I want to show you. There's a reason why he's telling Titus what he is in verse 5. And it's because he did this himself. Verse 21. 
After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Okay, first they gave them the gospel. Second, it says they waited to see whom God would save. Third, they made many disciples. And what that means is they trained these people. They trained them in the word. Fourth, they waited to see the growth. Why did they do that? Verse 22, look at it. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. In other words, they don't really know who the genuine Christians are yet, but they just want to keep encouraging them. Hey, keep going. Keep loving Jesus. Keep obeying Jesus. Just keep following Christ and we'll see who's faithful and who's left. Verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Hey, I'm going to be honest, Paul says. This is not going to be easy. I love that. You get your sins forgiven. And then you get put on a track where it's just not easy. But isn't it worth it to have your sins forgiven? Verse 23, and I watch this, and they're not done yet. When they had appointed elders for them in every church. Sound familiar? Every church. Having prayed with fasting, it says, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is just a great scene. I mean, notice though, the the work in getting a church started wasn't done until they had appointed elders in every church. I like that. That's very helpful to me. I mean, if I were to talk to a missionary who's gone out and maybe let's say he's been there for a few years and I'm talking to him about the church that he is a part of, one of the questions I would ask him is tell me about the elders there. Why are you asking me this question? Because that's how Paul viewed starting churches. You got to the place where you appointed elders. Plural. Now, let's put everything together from all the passages that we have looked at. Here's what you get about appointing elders. Eldership is, first of all, led by men. Notice all of these in every plate. Men. Men, 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 men. Led by men. Secondly, eldership is a plurality. It's not you have the chief guy and then you have all the others that are kind of, it's a plurality. Thirdly, eldership is a unanimity. And what that means, unanimity means you make decisions all together. It's not 80%, it's not majority rules. It is One voice. Why? Because we're after the one will of Christ. And you just keep hammering through whatever it is you're hammering hammering through to be able to understand and know the one will of Christ. And so you can communicate that to the church and lead the church in that direction. Fourth, we notice that it is a shepherding task. Right? You're after caring for souls. Fifth, it is a qualified position. Sixth, it is a mature position, implying experience and humility. Because what you've done by doing that is, when he says not laying hands on anyone too quickly, First uh, Timothy 5.22, what he is saying is, make sure that you know what you see. Give that brother in the Lord room to grow so that he doesn't have the responsibility and care for souls while still dealing with the pride of his heart. Seventh, an eldership is in tuned with the one will of Christ, is in tuned with it. That's how the church is to behave. 
Say, what's that mean for us here at GBC? Listen, that's what God wants for us. And I tell you, this is incredibly relevant, isn't it, right now? And we're at a place where we have one elder, and if you look at the all of this, it's like, oh, okay, let's do some work. It means that we have, we need to be training men. It, it means we need to live at both ends. You say, what do I, what, what do I mean? What do you mean by live at both ends? Well, what if there are men, but they're not ready? I mean, what if you appoint them too soon, right? Both ends, the qualified men, yes, perfect, no, right? On one end, you have the need, appoint elders. We don't have them, so appoint them. But on the other hand, on that other end, you appoint ready elders. Qualified, mature shepherds. He said, all right, here we are in the middle. What do we do in the meantime? You train, you pray, you move forward with purpose and by faith. See. So, the church that behaves, commits the sound doctrine, preaches the word, confronts sin, rejects false teaching, prays evangelistically, appoints elders, number seven, shepherds and disciples, believers. Now the elders do this, but listen, it is a whole church thing to disciple believers. And we're talking about here purposeful relationships. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, the elders receive double honor. That means they get paid because of the labor and hard work that they put in the preaching and teaching. That doesn't mean just you know sitting at a desk and coming up with sermons and then showing up Sunday and letting it go, okay? It means more than that. It, it, it is taking the word and getting it into the lives of others in a life-on-life way. But it's more than just the elders. Uh, turn to 2 Timothy 2, two if, you're, if you're not there. And this is the key thought, really, for discipleship. In verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Now that's discipleship. He says, you, Timothy, have heard the truth from me. I've taught you scripture. You know what it means. And there have been witnesses in this process. People have actually seen you. They've seen this process. I met with you and I taught you and I rebuked you when your life was off and I corrected you and I trained you up and now I want you to go and give that away to others. What kind of people, Timothy says, should I look for? He says, faithful. Find faithful people and then give it away and then urge them to do the same thing. Well, what happens if they're not anointed? Like by the, I don't know, whatever you would anoint. He doesn't say that here. He just says, just get them going. What are we waiting for, right? I mean, he just, you know, well, I think maybe I should be recognized for that. No, just go and do. Train others in this, you see. Disciple them. Listen, that's just what Jesus did, right? Over and over, follow me and I will make you fishers of what? Men. The symbol of Jesus' ministry wasn't the classroom, by the way. It was the field for the shepherd, right? Get your hands dirty. That's what, that's what, I mean, I think we had, we get the wrong view of Christianity. The reason why we have a classroom is to sit there long enough to then get out and get your hands dirty. Do work that you have to repeat day after day. Meet with people. Ask questions. Pray with them. Teach them. Urge obedience. Share in the joy of knowing God. Say something encouraging from the Word and give them hope. That's how you do it. 
Give them answers from this book. It's okay for you to say, I don't know. When they ask you a question, I really don't know. Let's read the Bible together. That's a great, that's a great thing to do. You don't have to have a degree to do that, by the way. Get them into the lives of others. That's what field work looks like. Now turn for, for a moment to Titus. And I want to show you this here in action. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Speak things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Now what is, what is fitting for sound doctrine? Ooh. I bet we're going to get really deep here. He's probably going to talk about like hypostatic union or something like that. Or I don't know. I mean, theodicy or something like that. Whoa. This is great. What's fitting for sound doctrine? You ready for this? Verses 2 through 10. This is what's fitting for sound doctrine. Where you have older men helping the younger men learn how to be sensible and temperate. You ever thought about those two words? Sensible. Sensible. By the way, there's another word that begins with S that kind of helps you with sensible. This maybe this will help you. This helps me. I always tell myself, am I being sensible? Don't be stupid, Mike. You know, that's what I tell myself, right? Oh, okay. Well, then I'm maybe if I, then I'll be sensible, right? He says, you got to help them to be sensible. That is where they're making good decisions. Temperate means where you're not just flying off, you know, the, this from the seat of your pants or off the hip, shooting off the hip. In other words, it says, don't, it says, temperate means making decisions without being driven by your emotion. And by the way, in all of this, it's older men helping younger men to do this. Help those younger men to learn how to love others and to stay in the race with perseverance. And by the way, same with the older women and the younger women. Teach those younger women how to love their husbands. Notice, not how to change their husbands. Get that one, ladies. It's tempting, right? You're like, but you don't know my husband. Well, I am one of those, you know. My poor wife. Like, how's your prayer life, honey? Keep praying. You know, I was going to tell her. Keep trying, you know. All right. Love your husbands. Don't love them. Teach them how to love them. Why? Because when you want to change them and they just don't change and you're praying and that change is like a slow change, you got to love them in the meantime, right? God has to be the one to change them. And yes, they need help. Now also how to love their children. You know, it's not natural. No matter how much the world wants to make it seem like loving children is natural. It isn't. No, nurturing is, is, has a little bit more of a natural feel to it. Loving is not natural. I'll tell you what is natural, loving yourself. So oftentimes we do things to make life convenient for ourselves. Now, all of Titus 2 is discipleship. So a church that behaves, commits to sound doctrine, preaches the word, confronts sin, rejects false teaching, prays evangelistically, appoints elders, disciples believers, point number eight, is absorbed in sanctification. Is absorbed in sanctification. Now what is sanctification? That's a good question. It's one of those that's a 25 cent church word, right? I mean, you start throwing that one out and I'll tell you, you're, you're, you sound pretty impressive, right? So how's your sanctification going lately? You know what I mean? Whoa, I didn't know we were going to get that deep today, you know? Whoa. Sanctification is the process of helping others grow to be more like Jesus Christ. That's it. And I say process because that doesn't happen overnight. I told you what you needed. Why aren't you doing it, right? Well, hang on. Let me get there, right? Doing what you can to help others live like Jesus. That's sanctification. 
to respond to life like Jesus, to walk like Jesus. Now go to First Timothy 4 to see this. Verse 15. Take pains with these things, he says. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Literally, when it says be absorbed in them, the word absorb is not even in the text. It literally says be in them. But the idea of being in them is, is to be absorbed in, in, in them. So NAS does right to throw the word absorbed in there. That's the idea. Be in them. Be absorbed in them. You're so in these things that it looks like you're absorbed in them. You're saturated in them. I mean, now what things is he talking about? Let me show you. Go back. Verse 6. The sound doctrine which you've been following. Be absorbed in that. Be in that. In it. Don't just read a book. Be absorbed in it. Don't just study a theology. Don't just study some truth. Be absorbed in it. Verse 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Be absorbed in godliness. In fact, verse 8, he even tells you how to be absorbed. Do it like you're working out. You know, he says, you know, you work, you understand what it takes to work out and to have discipline. But I tell you what, especially this time of the year, right? You get Christmas around and we know what Christmas means. Lots of eating, you know? I mean, have a jolly Christmas while you gain what? 10 pounds or whatever? And it just happens. And so you have that plan in January when you make that New Year's resolution. It's all right, it's coming off. And you know, that's just not going to happen easily. It's going to take discipline. And what he's saying, you know, discipline, discipline is hard work, lots of repetition, lots of saying no to some things and saying yes to other things. And what he is saying that about is not working out for, your, for this body. He's saying that to work out for godliness. Have that kind of discipline and commitment when it comes to godliness. And be absorbed in that, like a a good workout. Verse 10, it is for this we labor and strive. For what? What's the this he's talking about? Godliness. We labor and strive for godliness. Verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. What things? Teach others from the word just how to be absorbed in godliness. Work hard at that. Verse 12, be an example of that. Show others. Notice, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Listen, young people can be godly too. Show other young people what godliness looks like. If you're wondering, man, how do I be a teenager? Here's how you do it. Show other people what godliness looks like. Of course, it doesn't really happen unless you're godly yourself. Show it. Be absorbed in it. Show them what what godly conduct looks like, what godly love looks like, what godly faith looks like, what godly purity looks like. Be an example to those who believe. Now what I take away from all this, for this church is this. We need to make sanctification a big deal. We need to make holiness a big deal. See, we Grow in it. That's what verse 15 is saying. So that your progress will be evident to all. So all can see it. We don't live private lives as Christians. He says make it evident. If we have to go into your closet to see your godliness, it's not working. Okay? Make it evident. Why? We don't live private lives as Christian as Christians. Why? The reason is so others, that is other believers, can have the encouragement that they need to live for Christ. Why are you making that private? We need you. I need you to show me how to live like Jesus, and you need me too. We live for the benefit of others. 
So how does the church behave? Commits to sound doctrine, preaches the word, confronts sin, rejects false teaching, prays evangelistically, appoints elders, disciples believers, is absorbed in sanctification. Number nine, promotes godly and useful femininity. Now this is a counter-cultural point. Oh yeah, (laughs) we're going there. But listen, Paul knew this would be a big deal for the pastors that he trained. Ever since the day Adam and Eve sinned, this has been a struggle. He makes that point in this in these verses. So turn to First Timothy two and look at verses nine through fifteen. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, men will not lead their families in a loving way. They just don't. And so it's hard to find elders for a church, but then second. Women will reject the godly role of coming alongside and helping their husbands in a submissive way. They'll reject being feminine and a lot of times they'll say things like, well, if he would just do his deal, I would do my deal. Say, well, how about you do your deal and he does his deal? We just leave it at that. They're going to reject becoming or being feminine, Paul says. Men will become more like women, and women will become more like men. And that's just humans rebelling against God. We all do this. It's a sign that sin really is our biggest problem, that sin is real when we're at this place, that sin reigns and we need deliverance from it. Look at this passage. Keep your finger on chapter 5 also. Now you've got all these women's lib movements and listen, all of them are fighting God. Every single one of them. Their issue is not men and oppressive men. That's not their biggest issue. Their biggest issue is God. God made man and woman a certain way and when we live by his design it flows in the right direction and we need, we have to keep that in mind and you fight it and you're really just mad at your creator that's that's who you're mad at It's a statement against creation the women's the women's lib movement is Understand that I know that because Paul here in talking about it goes right after Make, supporting his point by talking about creation. Paul tells Timothy and Titus, you guys can't ignore this when it comes to what the church should be doing. So look at verse 9. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. I'll help explain some of you ladies maybe came here with braids or whatever. You're, you're okay. <laughs> it's all right. This is for just the, you know, yeah, that'd be kind of interesting. Now, the women, let me help you understand. The women of, of their day, if they, if they wanted to get attention from men in the wrong way, what they would do is they would flaunt their wealth in some way, okay? With, you know, putting wealth in their hair or bling or whatever. And a bunch of it. They would, in fact, you know how they would do is they would weave gold literally into their hair, right? So you could see the gold and it could be a statement of their liberality. And all that they were doing is just trying to get attention from men about that. And what Paul is saying is pay attention, ladies, to how you dress not to get attention in the wrong way. Make sure that it is modest and discreet. Now, who decides what is modest? He, he really makes that an issue of between you and the Lord, but look at verse 10. This will help you. But rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Now, he doesn't tell us what is modest and what isn't specifically, but he gives a principle that should help Christian women literally make how you dress match your claim to godliness. So, 
What claim are you making to godliness? In other words, this is, this is the God, this is what I want to be. I want to be this. This is the direction of my life. Your claim to be a woman that follows Christ, you should be able to claim Jesus wants me to wear this. He wants me to. So that when you do stuff and when you give yourself to good works, no person has to work through any confusion when they see what you're wearing. That's the point. That's the point. And by the way, he's not even talking about, oftentimes we go right to talking about issues of lust and purity that way, but he actually doesn't talk about that here. He's just merely talking about being a distraction with regards to godliness. Which would include issues of purity and all of that. Don't be a distraction. Don't distract people from being easily able to see Jesus. That's what he's saying. Verse 11. Quietly receive instruction with the tired submissiveness. You say that's oppressive. No, it's not. It's not. Listen, they lived in a society society that didn't even allow women to attend functions with the men where there was teaching. When he says, what he's basically saying is make sure that women are part of the church service too. Coming to church and receiving the word and learning theology isn't just for men. It's for all of us, he's saying. But make sure you do it in the right way. Verse 12, they're they're not the teachers, though. Just make sure of that. Why? Why is that the issue? Because of clarity about authority. And again, he goes back to creation, and then he says, remember what happened at creation, after creation? Sin came into the world. How did sin come into the world? came because the woman was deceived and the man rebelled. And so he's saying when a man recovers what he was made for and a woman recovers what she is made for, we can do our work to reverse the curse, the direction of the curse. And to give clarity about authority You say, so he's saying it's okay for a man to exercise domineering authority over a woman? No. No. He's saying because of how God made man and woman, he clearly wanted the man to exercise the authority that is in such a way where he conveys God's authority. Do you understand that? Husband, father, the only authority that you have is the one. It, your authority is borrowed. It's not even yours. It's not yours. It's his. And you must convey that it is his. And don't forget, God is gracious and kind and slow to anger, patient. And he wanted the woman to support that. The real issue then isn't about man's authority, but God's. And so when a man doesn't exercise God's authority properly, we call him out on it, right? Verse 14 tells us, since Eve was deceived from the beginning, it is clear that all women need to be led by the word through godly men. He says, so a woman can't think for herself? No, that's not what this text is saying. It is saying that sin is real and it impacted how women try to live their lives. And God says to the women, spend your time trying to have impact on raising your children right. What's that look like? Or grandchildren. If you have grandchildren. What's that look like? He tells us. In faith, in love, 
in sanctity, or you can even say holiness. And with self-restraint. Listen, can you imagine helping children live like that? I mean, what an impact on society that we would have if you help children live that way. That'd be incredible. In other words, the Bible lifts the bar to be a high calling for a woman. We're talking about godly femininity and usefulness through the home. Bring God's word into that home with your children. You say, so dads have nothing to do with that? No, they do. To get that, you would have to go to Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. That's where we talk about the dads and their role with that. But here the point is trying to help Christian women to not be distracted from the high calling that God has given them for impact on the world. It's interesting, over in chapter 5, talking to widowed women, the younger ones, he says this in verse 14. I want younger widows to, to get married, bear children, keep house. And give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. I mean, this is the general direction for all Christian women. It is a tremendous ministry opportunity, beloved. It is a push for being truly feminine. And that's the idea of Titus 2, 4 through 5. John MacArthur says the home is the domain where a married woman fulfills herself in God's design, end quote. We live in an age where the world has painted a terrible picture about the woman's role in the home as though it is second or even third class. As though it is less of a work or calling for a woman. But beloved, it is the highest calling. Paul reminds Timothy that he is a believer because God used the work of grandma and mom. Second Timothy 1 and 3. Now I do realize I probably raise more questions than I give you answers at this point. But the Bible doesn't apologize for this. Every age, every generation, when the church is behaving right and a pillar to support the truth, it looks like this. All right, let's finish this up with the last few here. Number 10, Foster's Servants. First Timothy 3, verse 8. We're behaving right when we foster servants. This is the section on deacons. The word for deacon is diakonia. It is the general word for servant. And what Paul said to Timothy is put together a group of people for the church called deacons or servants. You say, aren't all Christians supposed to be servants? Mark 10, 45. Didn't Jesus say that? Yes. But there's a collection of servants that are called that are, that are a group designed to serve the church in a special way called deacons or deaconesses. Why are they set apart this way? Why is this? Notice they come after the elders. you got the elders in verses 1 to 7. You have the deacons in verses 8 through 13. And the idea of these servants is to do work to free up the elders to do their work. The same, we see the same picture in Acts 6. Remember Acts 6? Where the apostles, and they were trying to do the work of the ministry of the word and prayer. And then he had an issue of serving that came up. And they said, hey, we need to have people that can serve in this church to free us up to do this other ministry so that we're all helping each other. That's the same, that's the model right there. You fast forward later and you have the elders doing the same ministry and needing the same kind of servants. What do they do? They do service for the church to free up the elders, to shepherd the church with the word and prayer. And so it is a ministry to free up the elders. Notice in verses 8 through 13, deacons have to be qualified as well. Deacons and deaconesses, women deacons. It isn't a teaching ministry. It is a serving ministry. And the idea is to do this kind of work to put a spotlight on the Lord's will 
through his word. Good work, Mama. (laughs) That's what they do. That's what the servants do. They're just trying to really make it so that we can all receive the ministry of the word and, and then just get going doing the life that the Lord wants us to do. All right, what's, it, what's our behavior like here? The church commits to sound doctrine, preaches the word, confronts sin, rejects false teaching, prays evangelistically, appoints elders, disciples, believers, is absorbed in sanctification, promotes godly and useful femininity, fosters service. Number 11, cares for the needy. All right, we're almost there. I, gotta get, I want to get these out of here. I'll probably just run a little more quickly at these last couple. You can see this in Titus 3, verse 8. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And then he talks about in verses 12 through 15 about helping various people and everything. Notice that it is something that needs to be learned when he says in, in, in Titus 3, towards the very end there, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds and to meet pressing needs. We don't serve by nature. We get something we have to learn. Oftentimes we don't see needs. And I think it's because we, we're busy doing things for ourselves and we see ourselves and our home and our children and our spouse and our jobs. And we our own needs. And so it's something that we need to learn how to get our eyes out instead of in. You know, so many of us do nothing because we're waiting to be asked. And that's why he says our people must also learn to engage in good deeds. You don't have to be asked. By the way, this uh, presumes something. I mean, you can't know a need if you don't know people. And to know people, you have to be around people. This is another reason why we make a big deal, by the way, about attending a flock group. Yeah, by the way, often uh, times, I mean, when I, when I hear about needs, I, I think often, I wonder which flock group this person is attached to. Why? Because then we can quickly mobilize people to meet pressing needs. All right, let me give you the last two here. Two more. How should the church work? What should we do? Point number, tw- number 12. Here's how we behave. The church encourages others in the work of God's grace. This is 2 Timothy 2.1. My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace. We help each other to know that we need His grace. How am I going to get through this? Grace. God's grace in Christ Jesus is always the answer. And you can really see this. Mark this down. We're not going to go through this, but please do this on your own. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, is the ministry of grace. Grace is God's work in you that you can't earn, but that you and I need. And the last one, the last thing that a church must do, point number 13, a church that behaves prepares for the finish line. Prepares for the finish line. We push each other to finish. And as we close, I want to close this section. Look at First Timothy 6 and verse 11. Let's close here. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession 
before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach, look at it, until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep doing these things. How long? Till Jesus comes back. What if I die? Well, then you'll come back with him. Wouldn't that be good? That'd be good. Do it till you die. Which he'll bring about at the proper time. You see, man, I'm sure hoping it's this afternoon, right? <laughs> Me too. Boy, I just, he just has to keep reminding us who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, and so forth. Amen, he says at the very end. Amen. Amen. That's, that's how church, be, we should be talking about Jesus coming back all the time. Hey, he's coming. He could be today. Have you, when was the last time you did that to, to another believer? Just want to help you remember, keep working Keep fighting. Keep finish strong. Jesus is coming. Now what's all this mean? Do all these things. He's coming back. There's a proper time for it. And all our behavior as his kind of church fits into this. Just keep doing this until Jesus comes back and be faithful in it. I'll tell you what, beloved, I, I, I am so thankful that the Lord has, didn't just leave it to us to try to guess and figure out, all right, what do we do? I don't know what we do. Let's all come together and vote on it or whatever. I mean, you know, that'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Because you know what we would do if we voted on it? Nothing. Right? Be, all right, we're just going to do nothing. Okay, I'll sign up for that, you know. Thankful to the Lord that he's given us a direction. Let's make sure as a church we... Uh, We honor that and we go that direction. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. We love you. We just want to carry it out, Lord. We're such uh, poor vessels to do it, Father, but thank you for your grace and help us to remind each other about your grace. And uh, we will give you the glory in advance for all the work that you'll do to make us here look more like Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.